The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live from our nation's capital, it's Deadline D.C. with Brad Bannon. Welcome to Deadline D.C. with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. I'm a Democratic strategist, a political analyst for WGN-TV and radio in Chicago, and a columnist for The Hill in Washington, D.C. You can read my take on the presidential race in The Hill every Monday. Just Google muckrack.com front slash brad dash bannon that's muckrack.com front slash brad uh, dash bannon my most recent contribution to the hill is my take on mayor pete and the generational battle between millennials and baby boomers in the democratic party if you want to learn more about me and my political polling and communications company go to facebook.com front slash Bannon dash communications dash research. My Twitter handle is at Brad Bannon. Today we'll discuss Medicare for all on the show. Our guest on the first half hour is Wendell Porter, a healthcare expert and advocate of Medicare for all. Democratic strategist Tim Zink joins the progressive political panel with our own executive producer Mark Grimaldi. If you want to be part of the show and talk directly to me and our guest, call us at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. These are the questions that we'll discuss today in the first half hour of the show. Inquiring minds want to know why why Medicare for All has become the defining issue in the Democratic presidential race. Two, is if Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders is the Democratic presidential nominee, can she or he convince Americans to abandon their private health care insurance plans? And third, and finally, how difficult will it be for a President Warren or a President Sanders to convince Congress and to uh, jump over the special health care private health care and special interest, and adopt a completely new government-run health care system. That is Queen, of course. We will rock you. Uh, Recently, the Trump campaign has been using We Will Rock You to introduce the president at his uh, campaign rallies. Uh, Brian May, the uh, guitarist for Queen, has filed a copyright suit uh, to enjoin the Trump campaign against using the song, and uh, apparently the Trump campaign has backed down. Anyway, uh, we're going to talk in this hour and also in the second half hour about Medicare for All. Our guest in this half hour is Wendell Porter. Wendell is president of Business for Medicare for All. 
He is also the founder of the journalism nonprofit uh, Tarbell.org, that's T-A-R-B-E-L-L.org, and author of the New York Times bestseller, Deadly Spin, an insurance company insider, speaks out on how corporate PR is killing healthcare and deceiving Americans, published by Bloomsbury in 2010. And... Another book, Our Nation on the Take, How Big Money Corrupts a Democracy and What We Can Do About It. Wendell previously served executive for two of the country's largest health insurance, Humana and Cigna. In 2008, he left his job as head of corporate communications at Cigna after after what he described as a uh, crisis of confidence. Uh, Wendell, why don't you start this off by describing your uh, crisis of confidence that led you uh, to leave Cigna and become an advocate for Medicare for All? You know, I became aware that what I was doing for a living was misleading people uh, and lying to people in, in various ways, obscuring the truth about uh, our U.S. healthcare system and health insurers in particular. I was a journalist in my first career. I was a newspaper reporter in my home state of Tennessee, and then in Washington I covered Congress and the White House uh, and the Supreme Court for um, uh, Scripps Howard newspapers back in the day. But I had a longer career in corporate uh, communications, and as you noted, I was heading corporate communications for Cigna when I left after what I've described as a crisis of conscience, and I came to realize again that I was doing the exact opposite of what I was trying to do as a reporter, which was to never mislead people, to give them facts, and uh, 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 never to purposely obscure um, some important facts, and that's what I was doing for a living. I went back home to Tennessee to visit family, uh, and this was kind of the, 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 the contributing thing that made me realize I just had to get another job. I uh, read about something in my hometown newspaper called a health care expedition that was being held nearby at a county fairground, and I went there out of, out of curiosity. It was uh, care that was being provided free by doctors and nurses who were um, uh, volunteering their time. And again, it was a county fairground, and I saw people lined up by the thousands waiting to get care in barns and animal stalls. And uh, I was just absolutely stunned. I had been able to insulate myself, isolate myself from the reality uh, of our health care system and how so many people are um, disadvantaged because of the way it is. Uh, there were, and I, I was expected to be a cheerleader also for some of the most egregious practices of the insurance industry, such as moving people into high deductible plans with deductibles so high they can't use their coverage. We're seeing that day in and day out. So I left and decided to become a critic of my industry, a very vocal one, and an advocate for reform that would take insurance companies out of the middle of the relationship between doctors and patients. Well, let let me ask you about that, Wendell. Uh, Americans are used to the system of private health insurance uh, companies. Um, How does uh, Medicare for All advocate like uh, Bernie Sanders uh, or Elizabeth Warren uh, convince Americans that we need such a uh, break with the current system of private insurers uh, and that, uh, you know, let's face it, Americans, many Americans are suspicious of government and the idea of, you know, such a drastic change going to uh, a government single payer system is going to 
scare some people. How, how do Medicare for All advocates reassure those people? Well, first of all, I would say that I do not advocate a government-run health care system. Um, I'm talking about a system that will be run by doctors and caregivers, uh, uh, not by private insurance companies. And in, in, in my experience, uh, ultimately by Wall Street, that's what has happened. We're talking about a system that will be publicly financed but privately delivered, not government-run. Uh, I think people, in fact, uh, Saturday Night Live this past uh, Saturday had, a, I think, uh, probably a perfect line. Uh, private insurance companies are like a bad boyfriend. Uh, we, they've been around a long time. Uh, we've gotten kind of used to them, but they were abusive. And I think people are beginning to, in fact, I know they're beginning to wake up to the fact that this is a relationship that needs to end. Um, we've seen such egregious practices like the ones that I uh, decided to leave my job over, but even more uh, over the last few years. We're seeing that it is the insurance companies that are calling the shots as to which doctors and hospitals we can use now. Uh, they're the ones who are shifting us into these high deductible plans, and the deductibles are so high that people who have insurance can't even get the care that they need before their coverage kicks in because they just don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars in the bank to cover that deductible. Uh, they're seeing that they are, uh, in many cases, not getting the care that their policy says they are entitled to because there is a nurse or a, a medical director within the insurance company that says, nah, uh, we're not going to pay for that. Even though it's a covered benefit, we don't think uh, it's uh, uh, going to be any Thing that we're going to pay for. That happens day in and day out, and Americans are waking up to this and are realizing uh, this is a bad boyfriend that we need to break up with, and, and the sooner the better. Uh, and I'm, I see this every single day. I can't tell you how many people I talk to tell me the stories of how they are not getting the care that they need for one reason or other. Either it's been denied or they can't afford it because of these high deductibles. Uh, the way the system has been run by these insurance companies is causing people to die every single day, and more and more people are realizing that. Okay, our guest in this half hour is Wendell Potter, uh, health care advocate, uh, former health care insurance advocate, and we'll be back with more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon right after these messages. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show. for Medicare for All, and I'm proud that it's the first health care plan by anyone in this presidential primary that lays out the full cost and how to pay for it. And here's the deal. It doesn't raise middle-class taxes by one penny, not one penny. If we make no other changes over the next 10 years, Americans will reach into their pockets and pay out about $11 trillion on insurance premiums, co-pays, deductibles, and uncovered medical expenses. My plan reduces those costs to zero, sort of like an $11 trillion tax break. So we have two choices. We can maintain the status quo that leaves 24 million uninsured, leaves 63 million with substandard care, and forces Americans to ration medicine and turn to GoFundMes. Or we can spend slightly less on Medicare for All, which covers everyone, ensures long-term care for our seniors, and puts $11 trillion back in the pockets of the people. 
by eliminating premiums, co-pays, and deductibles. Now, you might be asking, how can we possibly provide better coverage to more people for less money? Well, it's a two-part answer. Under Medicare for All, we rein in the corruption, the waste, the inefficiency, and the corporate profiteering. That's money we can save and money we can spend on actual care. So we pay less overall for health care to get more real health care coverage. The second part of the answer is to change the structure of who pays for health care in America and how. We're going to take the $11 trillion projected out-of-pocket health care costs over the next 10 years and make that number zero. No more premiums, co-pays, or deductibles. No more out-of-network bills. For middle-class families, that means thousands of dollars back in your pocket every year. Under my plan, existing federal and state spending on health care stays the same. For middle-class families, there'll be no new taxes. Look, you're already paying into Medicare and Medicaid, so you're done. No new taxes, no new costs. Business spending on health care also stays about the same. Payments just go to Medicare instead of to private insurers. That's about $9 trillion in the next 10 years. And we make up the rest largely with taxes on big corporations and the top 1%. So yeah, for the top 1%, they're going to have to pay their fair share. And corporations are finally going to have to pay the taxes they're meant to pay, just like everyone else. That's it. That's Medicare for all. It covers everyone. It's fully paid for. And independent economists have verified it's doable. That, of course, was Senator Elizabeth Warren. Uh, This is Deadline D.C. with Brad Bannon. Our guest in this half hour is Wendell Potter. He's a health care advocate and a supporter of uh, Medicare for All. If you want to find out more about Wendell, uh, you can go to his website, which is wendellpotter.com. That's W-E-N-D-E-L-L. P-O-T-T-E-R dot com. His Twitter handle is Wendell Porter. Uh, Wendell, a book you wrote, uh, Nation on the Take, it details the corrupting influence of moneyed special interest groups on American politics. My question to you is, how does a, a President Warren or Sanders make get over the uh, big money opposition there'll be to Medicare for all uh, from the health insurance companies who have everything to lose uh, from the adoption of such a system. It, that That's going to be tough. Is it possible? It's absolutely possible. Uh, possible. I do think that they will have to uh, devote uh, time to figuring out how to reduce the power and influence of uh, uh, big money on politics, and that's why I wrote Nation on the Take, uh, to help people be aware of just how influential, how much money is spent by big corporations like the ones that I work for, how they spend money to influence public opinion, to make us think that we need to keep that bad boyfriend uh, of the insurance industry uh, in, our, in our lives. 
uh, and how they uh, uh, are able to keep um, uh, influencing elections and public policy. It's a big hurdle. I wouldn't be in this work, though, if I didn't think it could be done and wasn't worth the fight. And I think that both Bernie Sanders and, and Elizabeth Warren are absolutely committed to reducing the power and influence of these big entities that have so much power and influence over our lives. So that's that's important. I do think that, uh, you know, I used to be a propagandist for the industry. I know how all this is done uh, as a former insider, and I think they're seeing uh, the tide of public opinion turning, and people are just getting disgusted and fed up uh, with the immense power the corporations have. So I think they will have the public increasingly on their side as they go about doing this. Okay. My uh, last question is, um, what kind of changes can Americans expect in the way they uh, uh, pay for and receive health care assistance if uh, Medicare for All uh, becomes law? It'll be a vast improvement over what most people have today. We tend to think uh, we've just been led to believe by by people like I used to be that private insurance is uh, better and more valuable than Medicare, which is absolutely not the case. If you look at public opinion polls over many, many years, you'll see that people who are Medicare beneficiaries, despite even some of its shortcomings, is far more popular than private insurance companies. When that is when when we have Medicare for all, improved Medicare for all, we'll no longer have to worry about these deductibles that we can't afford. We'll not have a medical director standing between us and our doctors saying, no, we're not going to give you that procedure because uh, we don't want to pay for it. Uh, you You will have uh, a system that is better able to control health care costs. One of the things that the Affordable Care Act did not do was bring down the cost of health care. And insurance companies don't, cannot, nor do they really want to bring down a health care cost because the more they go up, the more profits they can make. Um, so it'll be far better. The other thing that we'll see, say goodbye to is insurance companies determining which doctors and hospitals we can see. Increasingly, they're limiting our access. They're calling the shots not only of whether or not we'll get a treatment that we need, but also uh, which doctor or hospital can provide it if we get the treatment at all. That will go away. There is no such thing like that in Medicare today, and there certainly will not be uh, in the future under Medicare for all. Uh, Wendell, thanks very much for joining us. We're going to go to break now. Our guest was Wendell Potter. Uh, If you want to find out more about Wendell and his work, you can go to his website, uh, WendellPotter.com. His Twitter handle is Wendell Potter. Uh, We'll be back with more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon with our provocative progressive political panel right after these messages. Okay, we are back with more Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. As in the second half hour, as is our custom, we're going to devote to our progressive, provocative progressive political panel. Our guest panelist today is Tim Zink, a principal at Molecule, a public affairs and business company. Tim has spent his distinguished career shaping public policy and politics. His Twitter handle is Green Crude, a credit to his environmental advocacy. 
Uh, but before we, and of course, joining Tim on the panel is our own executive producer and progressive political activist, Mark Grimaldi. We'll start the panel today with the hot topic in the Democratic presidential campaign, which we discussed in the first half hour, Medicare for All. Medicare for All has become the defining issue in the Democratic race for president. Rightly or wrongly, support for Medicare for All defines Democratic voters and candidates as progressives, uh, while opposition marks people as moderates. Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders favor single-payer health insurance, while Joe Biden and Mayor Pete uh, favor uh, Medicare for all that need it or want it. If Warren or Sanders becomes the nominee, they'll have to defend themselves against GOP attacks for being socialists and big taxers and big spenders. It won't be easy for either of them. But Trump and Republican candidates have problems, too. The president has said that the, pres- that the GOP won't offer its own health care plan until after the 2020 election, which is a polite way of saying they don't have a plan at all. Not only that, but Trump's new budget cuts uh, include spending on Medicare. The uh, GOP hardcore opposition to reforming the health care system allows the Democratic nominee to offer a Medicare for All as a bold choice to solve the health care crisis facing Americans, while the GOP has nothing to offer besides bold negative rhetoric. Let the fight begin. Okay, let's start with the panel. Uh, the first question I want to pose to the panel uh, is uh, let's assume that uh, I've been, we're certainly not anywhere close to this, but it seems to me we've got four president, Democratic presidential candidates who are real players right now. Uh, we have Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, uh, who are both advocates of health care for all. And on the other hand side, we have Joe Biden and uh, Mayor Pete, uh, who are favor, you know, essentially uh, beefed up versions of Obamacare for all. But uh, the question is, if Sanders or Warren uh, becomes the nominee, is their support for Medicare for all um, a positive or a negative? Uh, Tim, you want to start this one? Well, hey, thanks for having me, Brad. Uh, but you know, I think the I think the answer is clearly if you look at the polls out there and just kind of put your ear to the ground. Uh, you know, Sanders and Warren's approach to healthcare is uh, raises a lot of questions, even among Democrats. And in particular, it raises questions among moderates in those states that we need to win in. And then I I worry in a general election of the impact that independents and independent leading Democrats would have. Uh, that have concerns related to the health care costs. I mean, between, uh, you know, the estimates by Elizabeth Warren and, uh, and Bernie Sanders are the, the cost of their programs are between $20 trillion and $40 trillion, and that just seems to be uh, a really difficult political uh, issue for them to overcome. Okay. Uh, Mark, you want to weigh in? I do think that it would be a very heavy lift. Um, Polls show that a majority of Democratic voters support it. So if you're talking about the Democratic primary, I I feel that so far it seems like it's been a a disadvantage, um, save for parts of the last debate 
to be one of the candidates that is not for Medicare for all, um, as it seems to be a real winner amongst Democratic primary voters. Now, uh, once you get to um, the people outside of the Democratic primary, I think it's a much smaller majority, but it is a majority. Most of the polls I've been seeing are around 55 percent supporting um, some type of Medicare for all plan or a single payer plan. You know, it has different terminology and there are different ways to go about distributing it. Like your your previous guest, Wendell Potter, said um, the plan he was talking about was having uh, doctors, you know, basically be in charge of large parts of the plan and having it being distributed that way. Um, but there's a lot of different ways to go about it. I do think that ultimately uh, you are going to see more Americans support it because our healthcare system is is unsustainable. It gets more and more expensive each year for less and less care. Now, would uh, Vice President Biden and Mayor Pete's plans improve the system or at least stop the bleeding that the Trump administration has caused? Absolutely. Um, I do think if President Obama's plan, uh, the Affordable Care Act, would have been fully enacted with all of the states taking up the money and uh, that they were supposed to be getting and, you know, the rest of the marketplaces being fully funded, I think that could have thrived um, and become the the law of the land. So do I think a public option could have helped because that really would have been, I think, the way to go about showing if the government run option was better than the private options. Now that maybe that ends up being a happy medium and, you know, let's do a little forecasting, say it is a, uh, a Senator Warren or Sanders who wins the presidency. Uh, you know, once you get to Congress, we'll see how hard it is to stick to their guns on that proposal. Uh, maybe you could see something of a phase out type of plan. Uh, I, I do think though, uh, you know, I'm 37 years old. My generation, it's a lot more popular with than um, some of the baby boomers. And, you know, as you know, we're going to be the become the largest voting block. Um, so it remains to be seen, you know, how those people will get out to the polls as numbers have increased. But um, I do feel just this, the, even if you don't want to talk about Medicare for all, if you just look at our current health care system, it is unsustainable at its current rate. There's going to be less and less people who can afford it, um, yet you have all these other industrialized nations in the world who can achieve it. Um, I don't see any reason where we can't practically achieve it. It's just like you said, Brad, uh, explaining to people the way to do it, having the right plan to go about it. And then I think the biggest hurdle really would be getting over special interests, just like anything else we care about in this country because of the way that Citizens United has just gutted um, basically uh, our public financing or excuse me, our financing of elections and uh, seeing issues like that be lobbied against so hard. Okay. Uh, let's try this. Uh, sometimes um, I get discouraged about what's going on. Uh, and every day Donald Trump does something to drive me crazy. And I think to myself, well, you know, Americans just aren't going to take very much more of this. Uh, but then sometimes I get yeah, drag kicking and screaming into reality. And uh, today the New York Times did that. Uh, they released a series of polls they did in six battleground states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Florida, North Carolina, and Arizona. And the numbers in the Times poll 
say that despite everything that's happened, uh, we're looking at Donald Trump basically is in a dead heat uh, with the prominent, all the prominent Democratic presidential candidates. And boy, that, that, that depressed the hell out of me. And so my question is, you know, what's your reaction to this, Tim? I find it very depressing that everything that's happened, the best any of our candidates can do is a dead heat against Donald Trump. What's your reaction? Yeah, I saw that this morning, too. I I went to uh, look at all the survey data and just try to kind of make some sense of it, that's for sure. Well, I think it's. I think it's. Uh, I think the. I think the answer to the question is one. Americans aren't really focused on on uh, on all of the troubles, um, and uh, the consequences that the president has uh, sort of caused. And I. I think Americans are, from a political perspective, sort of worn out from the constant drumbeat of you know one. Uh, controversy or one um, issue over another. And so I think you're seeing some of that reflected in, in polls. I think where Americans are getting their news from is also another consequence of what we're seeing sh- uh, show up in these early early polls. Um, uh, and I think the other issue, though, is, uh, you know, the Democrats haven't pr- proposed a unified or, or single candidate yet, uh, a nominee. And so um, I guess uh, uh, part of my uh, brain says that, uh, you know, at least we're beating him in many, um, many important battleground states uh, at this stage. I'm surprised we're not whooping him. Um, And I think that stems from the fact that, uh, you know, the president is, uh, um, you know, in his in his uh, in his machine are good at communicating to the lowest common denominator in this country. Uh, and good at um, capturing uh, the mood of the country, which is disgusted with politics, period. So I think there's a lot going on out there, Brad, and I feel I, I know exactly what you're talking about, the sort of overwhelming feeling that Americans just aren't clued in yet. Um, it really concerns me. However, there, um, <clears throat> there are indications of hope in the poll because we continue uh, we continue to beat him in, in, in key uh, strategic battleground areas. Okay, uh, we're going to go to break now, but when we come back from break, we'll have more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon and our provocative progressive political panel with Democratic strategist Tim Zink and our own executive producer Mark Grimaldi. We'll be back in a few minutes. Welcome back to Deadline D.C. with Brad Bannon and our provocative progressive political panel. Our guest panelist today is Tim Zink, a principal at Molecule, a public affairs and business company. Uh, Joining Tim on the panel is our own executive producer and progressive political activist activist Mark Grimaldi. Uh, Let's pick up the point we were discussing Uh, because I'm obviously concerned about this. Uh, Looking at this New York Times poll that shows basically all, there's some variation. Joe Biden is doing a little bit better than the other candidates, but it's pretty much close within the margin of error. 
my question is, what should Democrats be doing that apparently we haven't been doing so far that leads us in this precarious uh position where Donald Trump may be losing nationally in the popular vote, but he seems to be holding up in the uh, battleground states, which determine the outcome of the Electoral College. Uh, Tim, what should we be doing that we haven't been doing so far? You're a political uh, strategist with a lot of experience. What do you think? Yeah, I think we need to be focusing on the economic messages and healthcare messages not just health care for all messages, but how are we going to solve basic middle-class Americans' access to health care? One, two, what, how are we going to bring down the costs of prescription drugs? It seems to be one of the strongest core messages we have out there. And three, uh, what are we going to do? And this would be a great way to uh, sort uh, what are we going to do about uh, manufacturing jobs and jobs uh, for middle-class Americans in the United States? And You know, we need to get back to those core discussion points and all of our advocacy groups and uh, stakeholders within the Democratic uh, universe need to get back to these core messaging. Let the Congress fight forward on uh, impeachment, but we need to have uh, these messages out there and really get to the meat and potatoes of what Democratic and independent voters tend to elect presidents on. Uh, Mark, you want to what uh, balls in your court now? Yeah, I would very much agree with Tim. And I think you have no further to look than how successful Democrats were in the 2018 midterms with the number one issue being health care. And I think Tim is spot on. Uh, it's not just a conversation about Medicare for all. You know, that is a, a time and place for it on the debate stage. But when specifically talking about how we are different than the Trump administration, I think the message was very clear in 2018, which was, look, they are currently and they still are trying to strip away in the the courts the rest of the Affordable Care Act, which means uh, not being able to have health insurance companies discriminate against you if you have a pre-existing condition. That's currently still going on. So that is what the Trump administration is advocating for, which is the, the most popular part of the Affordable Care Act. So we have evidence. We have not just polls, but actual voting to show in in all of these different states, by the way, that that was the number one winning issue for Democrats. So I think that is the issue to focus on if you want to just pick one out. But when you're talking about the economy, uh, the Trump administration has been having the economy slow and the jobs that have been uh, coming about have not been high paying jobs for Americans. Whereas you can contrast that message and talk about things that are also popular with Americans like infrastructure, which the joke of the Trump administration has been infrastructure week, because every infrastructure week, there's been a different crisis that shows how inept this administration is that they can't even get to something that should be bipartisan. Um, So I think those are two winning issues. But I also think that climate change is up there because more and more Americans are having their lives completely rocked 
by these weather events um, in all different types of state. I mean, you want to talk about Florida. Look at what has happened to that state just since Trump has been elected with the different natural disasters. And I think, um, you know, that is a very popular message about young to young voters when you want to get out the vote, which you have the biggest advantage between Democrats and Republicans is in the younger voting block that drives them to the polls along with the issue of gun violence, because um, we've seen how this generation uh, has been affected by it. You know, they've grown up in a post Columbine era where, you know, they're having to go through active shooter drills and they're, if they're out of um, high school and, and into college now, you know, you have uh, the, uh, the debt crisis. I mean, all of these issues, the Trump administration is on the wrong side of it. So it is a manage, uh, a matter of finding the winning issues. But uh, the good news for Democrats is, is just how awful the Trump administration is at solving any of these issues. And, and when you really can focus in on them, um, we should be clobbering them. So I, I agree with you both. Um, that's the thing. <laughs> if they had a popular position that we had to go against, I could see being concerned about it. But, you know, when you look at and you pull each of these issues out one by one, they're not on the higher side of the issue. Um, so I, I think that's it's a messaging uh, a thing as well. Uh, by the way, I should uh, mention uh, that uh, yesterday marks exactly one year uh, until the 2020 presidential election. So we're we're getting there. Uh, also, uh, I believe today uh, means there as of today, there are only 88 days until the Iowa caucuses, less than three months. So uh, looking at the uh, recent Real Clear Politics polling averages in Iowa and New Hampshire, and in both cases, we have four candidates, the same four candidates, uh, in double digits. Uh, in Iowa and New Hampshire, we have Mayor Pete, who last name I refuse to pronounce because I always screw it up. Uh, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, and Bernie Sanders are all in double digits uh, in the two early primary states, and only the four of them. Now, they're arranged differently in Iowa. Actually, Warren and Mayor Peter head, uh, and in New Hampshire, uh, so right now it's a race between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. So my question here is, uh, are they the four? Uh, is there room for one of the other candidates uh, to come out from the dust and become a player in this race? Or are we looking at a, a, a group of four, Tim? Yeah. Well, I, I, I hate to make predictions, but I, I, I kind of think we, we're down to the four. Um, maybe uh, Klobuchar could, could uh, pick up some steam and step in. I think the rest are pretty much done. Um, so I would I would make my bet on the on the four that that we're focused on now: Buttigieg, Buttigieg, uh, Warren, Sanders, and uh, Biden. And then I would think that um, uh, you know uh, I, I would think in the early primary states that you would uh, favor uh, Warren, uh, and then it, it still looks like uh, uh, Biden does well in South Carolina. Yeah, he should. Actually, you're right, Tim. Uh, looking at the polls in South Carolina, Joe Biden is ahead uh, and has a significant lead, uh, largely based on the fact that he's doing very well with black voters. 
Um, and I should note that uh, probably our, most of our listeners know that Beto O'Rourke from Texas uh, got out of the race on Friday. And also late last week, Kamala Harris uh, closed down her field offices in uh, New Hampshire because of funding problems. Uh, but anyway, I want to, uh, that's it today. Thanks to my guest, Wendell Porter, Tim Zink, and executive producer Marco Maldi. Tune in next week for Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm here every Monday at 3 if the Lord is willing and the creek don't rise. Unless Donald Trump declares martial law, that is.